Good afternoon. Welcome to Kitchen Radio, a fortnightly radio show and podcast that celebrates and explores the world of cooking and eating here in Central Australia. My name is Rita Catoni. That opening track was A Short Time by Weddings, Parties, Anything. And I've chosen it as a tribute to the topic of today's show, which is about a restaurant here in Central Australia um, that operated for a very short time but was very successful. Now, I've lived here in Central Australia for over 20 years, and while I love living here, I've often bemoaned the absence of a, a, a drive-worthy experience on the weekend, you know, somewhere that I can drive to for an amazing food experience. You know, if I'm out at Trafina Gorge or Ormiston, I'm happy to drop into Glen Helen Resort or Ross River Resort, but I'm not going out there for a food experience as such. You know, the destinations are the gorges and their surrounds, and I would usually pack a picnic lunch. However, I've been told that there was once such a place, a place that was very much worthy of a Sunday drive. In the late 1980s, a group of women in Central Australia had a vision to establish a fine dining restaurant in a remote location. The team had a lot of experience and included tourism pioneer Di Burns, her partner Jill Scott and friend and foodie Sandra Klein. They'd run a number of successful tourism ventures in Central Australia in the 1980s, including the Red Sands, Pioneer and Inland Motels. Cloudy's, the restaurant that was created, was named after local pioneer Cloudy Beale. And the location of the restaurant was Glen Helen. And really you couldn't choose a better spot. It's surrounded by spectacular cliffs, sits near a beautiful waterhole and it's part of the West Mac Ranges. And it's the perfect hour and a half Sunday drive. For five heady years from 1987 to 1992, for five heady years from 1987 to 1992, Cloudy's became widely recognised as an outstanding and exciting restaurant. It was visited by locals, tourists and well-known personalities. Stephanie Alexander even dedicated a chapter to Cloudy's in one of her books. Sadly, Di Burns passed away in the mid-1990s and Cloudy's also closed down around this time. Mindy Byrne, who was Cloudy's head chef during those five years, has been visiting Alice Springs and I got a chance to chat with her and Sandra Klein about what it was like living at Glen Helen and running Cloudy's in those heady days. Sandra, could you tell me about how you came to be in Alice Springs? I was living and working in Melbourne as a nurse and I came up on holidays to visit friends who were living here and I guess in that time... In those two weeks I met some interesting people and decided eventually that I would probably move up here, which I did a few months later, and that was uh, September 1978, and I'm still here. Sandra, you were part of this team of women who were really pioneers in terms of tourism in Central Australia, and they were the ones behind Cloudy's Restaurant. Can you just tell me how Cloudy's Restaurant first got established and, and maybe some of the obstacles that the team had to encounter in terms of setting up Cloudy's and Glen Helen Lodge? Fairly long story, but to uh, make it shorter... After leaving the Inland Motel at then Ayers Rock, Di Burns and Jill Scott repurchased Glen Helen Lodge, which they had owned previously and had sold um, in the late 70s. So they bought the lodge back with the plan of refurbishing and uh, building more accommodation, which uh, was started in, that was in 1986, beginning of 86. So... The buildings were, the accommodation was being built and 
Unfortunately, there was a fire which burnt most of the actual lodge down. So they then rebuilt it and then continued on building the accommodation block. So eventually we opened that. must have been reopened. Or we never closed the, We never closed Glen Helen down. We just put an ATCO out the front and worked out of that. So while Diane Jill owned Glen Helen and I was out there, it was never closed down, not like it is now sometimes. So then uh, Di had a vision for the restaurant uh, as far as she had some old tables that she'd purchased in Queensland and Brisbane from an old... Sandgate Convent and various other pieces of stained glass and fine china which was used in the restaurant. So we opened the restaurant, I think we had a few so-called chefs which which wasn't, you know, you know the type of food that was being cooked wasn't really my, I was, I was very interested in food and wine. Once they'd go I'd, I'd get in the kitchen and I'm not a particularly good cook but I was better than them. So, um, so one busy day and in those days, it was busy out there, with, as far as local Alice Springs people were concerned. It was a busy Sunday, and I was in the kitchen cooking various things, like steak sandwiches, etc. And we had a sign-up behind the bar. I was sick of advertising for chefs, so I just had a sign-up saying, Kitchen Hand Wanted. And a friend who was working behind the bar came in to me and said, someone's asking about the job. And I said, well, look, I'm too busy now. You'll have to wait. And I tell them I have to wait, which they did. And uh, so when I'd finished, I went out and met this... There were two women out there. And one happened to be Mindy and her friend who were travelling up from South Australia, travelling through Central Australia, with no real intention of working at that stage. Anyhow, we had a chat and Mindy said she wasn't really looking for a job. But I sort of... I had a feeling that this was the person we'd been looking for. So I sort of persevered a bit, I think, and eventually suggested that maybe she could come out and just have a tryout in the kitchen for one night, which she did. And then she said, oh, well, I need to go and check out all the suppliers in town to see what's, well, what you could get. So a lot of pressure from Di at that stage about does she, does she want the job or not? <laughs> I said, just for once, let me, let me um, handle this. So... Mindy came and worked for us and, that, and was there for five years and that's how the actual Cloudy's restaurant, the good part of Cloudy's restaurant started. That era was quite amazing. We had people coming from far and wide. We'd have people ring up on the... because we only had a radio telephone and it was outside under a tree after the fire and it stayed out there. So, you know, they'd ring and say, have you got an airstrip nearby that we could land our plane to come to the restaurant? I said, oh, no, not really. But... Um, so then we won many accolades, we won many awards, many Brolga awards. It'd be great to sort of hear now Mindy's story as well, because we've got to the point of Mindy sort of coming out yep. to the restaurant. Yep. Mindy, can I sort of hear from your perspective how, how you came to, I've said apply for the job, but I think that's not the right word. I had for quite a long time, a couple of years, just had a non-specific need to travel to the desert. I'd never been there before, but it was really clear that I wanted to be there. I really don't know why. I'm not quite sure what generated that. I had read Robin Davidson's tracks and more recently I thought, mm, I wonder if that planted the seed. And so it was a long journey. I left where I was running a restaurant in Sydney and went to study in Adelaide. I did retrospective chef's training at Regency Park College, which was a fantastic TAFE, like really amazing culture. And there I met wonderful people that I worked with and so I finished the course which was a chef certificate 
so I was qualified then having previously run a restaurant just on the hop and I worked with one of the most fabulous people that I'd studied with Julie Zakalis who had done her apprenticeship with Chong Lu in Adelaide we loved working together and so she'd been offered a job at the Bridgewater Mill which was the Petaluma champagne production site and cellar door sales and it was a new project and they were opening a restaurant to go with that and so Julie had been asked to be the head chef there and she kept saying come with me come with me and I was going Julie they haven't offered me a job but anyway eventually we did craft a little um, role for me there which was go to the Adelaide market every day with the checkbook and buy whatever you want so that was pretty fun and then I cooked for Julie on her days off as well as cooked with her and that was an amazing time but I did say to her I'm on my way to Central Australia so I worked there I can't remember for how long but um, Zanny another foodie friend from up there, Zanny Flanagan, also ran a restaurant in McLaren Vale and her chef had done the same course as me, Russell Jevons. And so I was, I really loved being in Adelaide. When I was in Sydney, I didn't really have a peer group other than the people that we just had our restaurant with and that was a fabulous time. But Adelaide had such an amazing food and wine culture. Just, you know, people that were your friends were winemakers and you know it was really quite a wonderful time and Zanny who had the Salopian in in McLaren Vale had a very busy life with family and running a restaurant and she traveled with me and I cooked in her restaurant for a week so she her chef could have a week off so she could then not <laughs> afford to pay someone so she could travel with me and she was the other person that turned up at Glen Helen. The thick and thin of it is that I was on my way to live in Central Australia and Zanny was on a quick holiday and that's how I ended up at Glen Helen, just journeying with her. And she was the one that, you know, wanted to make sure that I was employed before she left and went back to Adelaide and I wasn't looking for a job. So she was going, oh, look at that. And I'm going, yes, Annie, I don't want a job. This is the reticence that Sandra was mentioning. And it was real. I was interested in just coming up to Central Australia and finding my way. I didn't really know anyone very well. I had some very small contacts. And so that was interesting because I really don't know why I was so purposeful about wanting to live here, but I really was. And after a short period of time, after I'd said to Sandra, look, I'm not really looking for a job, I had enough time to just get a sense of what was offering and what was, you know, I went out to Ross River and again, just got a feeling that I shouldn't leave it too long because there probably wouldn't be a more wonderful place to work. And I loved living at Glen Helen. It was such a beautiful lifestyle. What was your initial impression of the restaurant when you first started? Oh, look, it was clearly get them in, get them out, get the money from them. Let's just deal with feeding people. But the message was we really want to have a fine dining restaurant. And Sandra just, I don't know where, I suppose she's just always had a long-term interest in food and wine. And she just got it. She just knew that I was somehow the right person. And so when I started working there... I was very supported and I was given pretty free reign to craft a menu and a lot of enthusiasm from Di and Jill and Sandra. They really let me run, which was great. And how was it for you, Sandra, when you came across? Oh, it was very exciting and a relief. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was an exciting time and looking back, I'm not quite sure how we managed, but uh, somehow or other we did. It was very day-to-day. Basically, 
getting skilled staff was a joke. You just had to say yes to anyone who was interested in working. So there was a lot of training, you know, fast track into this is how we do things here. And sometimes gems would turn up. I remember we had some two young Dutch women who were travelling together and they were just the most enthusiastic, fabulous people. And I had one of them trained up in a short period of time to be able to cook the menu on my days off. Sandra did it for quite a long time mm. and she was an excellent student. <laughs> now, Mindy was a very good teacher as well. That was, you know. <laughs> when a good kitchen hand decided that they were moving on, it was like heartbreak. Oh no, <laughs> don't leave me. <laughs> the heartbreak of Central Australia. Yeah. And yeah, right. just going back, the get them in, get them out, get the money from them was a joke from a very naughty apprentice that I had. He used to get that little mantra going when we were doing coaches <laughs> because our menu covered all ground. We had to do staff meals, we had a lovely bar menu and we had coaches that came in for lunches and coaches that came in for dinner and we had the fine dining. So there were so many layers that we were working with and John was just a bit naughty and extremely funny and clever. And he worked with us as my apprentice for a couple of years and he moved to Melbourne and finished his apprenticeship with Stephanie Alexander because she visited Glen Helen. Yeah, yeah, she had and she strung snow peas in my kitchen and uh, so that was that was an honour and that was a great time having that stability of an apprentice and yeah, there were some stable times, but there were also, I've said to Sandra, wouldn't it be great if we had a Polaroid snap of every person that worked at Glen Helen that passed through sometimes for one day and sometimes for much longer. So many stories. What was the kitchen like? Well, the kitchen had a fantastic stove. That was enticement for me. You know, really, the whole thing about what was it like when I first started there, the intention was so clear from the way it had been designed, that it had this fantastic double oven, fantastic cook, you know, gas stove. And the the actual kitchen had the in and the outdoor. You know, it was it was well thought out. It was small. It had a massive freezer and a walk-in cool room. So it was actually very sound and well considered. And the dining room was beautiful. And how about power? Were you running on a generator as well? That's That's right. Everything, all the services were managed on site. So I had to have a bore and the pump and the tanks and the generator that, you know, just pounded day in, day out and sometimes failed. And yeah, it was very much uh, remote pioneering, really. How did you go about sourcing ingredients for the restaurant? Well, when I first started, I took a couple of weeks to familiarise myself with what was possible and in my past life I had gone to the Adelaide markets every day or when I lived in Sydney I literally went to the fish markets every day so the commitment to you know really super fresh food had to change and so I had to choose ingredients that could last a week or tolerate freezing and that was my mission and there were some suppliers in Alice Springs one in particular a fellow called Doug who worked at Smimac and he was so, uh, he was like a detective. They didn't have much when I started, but if I said, could you get me snapper heads? Three months later, he'd say, I've got you those snapper heads. Or how about venison? And he'd, you know, when I was in town, he'd say, I think I've found someone who we'll be able to get some venison from. And so just that support was incredibly helpful. And nowadays in Alice Springs, you can get 
pretty much. I mean, yesterday, for example, I went shopping and I could get bean shoots and I could get Chinese greens and I could get gluten-free soy. And, you know, like, really, there was so, so, it was so different. And so we just had to craft a menu around what freezes. So I had things like sardines in blocks that I would then turn into restaurant fodder by filleting them and sandwiching them together and crumbing them in coconut, and, you know, like turning something very humble into something fancy. And some things freeze really well. Green prawns freeze really well. We used to get beautiful slabs of wild barramundi, and so I'd, you know, sometimes... Oh, I think that was nearly always on the menu because it was a really a fish that tolerated freezing really, really well. It was still delicious. And as far as adding the sort of restaurant edge, I would get friends to send me padded post bags with saffron and Chinese spices. And I had good supplies in... I mean, in those days, you couldn't buy Australian olive oil in the supermarket. So we would get drums of Australian olive oil sent up from Adelaide. And beautiful almonds and you know it, it really was a very different place so yes that was the the way I had to manage what freezes well and how do you dress it up and what about local ingredients did you, were there well, any, we, you know, did you do any growing yourself or were there local um, supplies not much growing myself but you know I would grab anything that was local and in the winter as you know the citrus is fabulous here so we'd always, you know, get whatever we could and people would deliver things. I remember I had a friend who had really thick hedge of bamboo and she used to let me go and pick really nice long bamboo leaves and I'd make little packages. I can't even remember what I put in them. Mm. And just anything that you could source locally. There was a fellow Dita who started growing mm. beautiful salad greens and herbs so I used to go out to his farm when I was in town and collect our order from him and he would grow things that I, I would say, how about French tarragon? And he'd go, okay, well, we'll see if we can get that going. And it grows really well up here, actually, surprisingly. So, yes, local ingredients, not a lot, but anything that we could source locally, of course, we used. Yeah, I noticed reading through some of the literature on cloudies that you were also using some bush foods just in a small way. Yeah, there were, I think at one stage we got some nice dried quandongs that we served in a duck sauce. It wasn't a theme for us. I think that I didn't want it to be that sort of novelty edge. I mean, there just aren't many local bush foods that you would get in restaurant quantities. And what was the style of menu? Our style of menu was small to make sure that everything that we did serve was high quality. But we would cover all bases. We would have a vegetable dish, a poultry dish, a meat dish, and seafood for both entree and main. So it was probably just four and four, occasionally maybe a bit more. But And the other thing was I was a little bit um, in trouble with red meat because people always wanted it overcooked, you know. I was really loath to have a beautiful piece of beef and then cook the hell out of it. So we actually just didn't serve beef. Sometimes we did it for the coach menus, we do roast beef, but we didn't put steak on the restaurant. Well, we did maybe once or twice early on, and the number of people that wanted it well done, I would send a message out to the dining room saying, do you think you could order something else? Because I think on the menu we said medium rare, and then people say, oh, no, I've got to have it well done. 
And I would send a message out saying, please choose something else on the menu because if I cook it well done, I won't be proud of it. We didn't have it on the, on the restaurant menu. We had it on the bar menu. We had steak. Yeah. yeah. I do remember that yeah. dialogue, but I can't yeah. remember exactly. Yeah. Yes, we did have it on the, on the um, bar, menu. bar menu. Did we let them have it well done? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You weren't cooking that most of the time. <coughs> you were sometimes. No. Well, were, we yeah. basically would oh, cook would. the yeah. bar meals yeah. as That's well true. as the restaurant yeah. meals after a certain hour. You know, there'd be someone else doing it maybe until seven, sure. but then... I was juggling yeah. both menus mm. and the bar menu was great all things considered it was a very good menu we always had a good curry and we had um, a really nice vegetarian dish and a steak and a steak <laughs> steak sandwiches good pickles yeah. yep and how often did the menu change uh, probably about every four to six weeks because we had a really interesting mix of clientele. We had the coaches, we had people coming for fine dining who were tourists and we had locals coming for fine dining. And so if we changed the menu every four to six weeks, there wouldn't be many locals that came more often than that. And then if there were as a need to change it daily or weekly for you know because of ingredients availability, then it would work like that but it was always a blackboard menu because of the need to change it every now and then. Yeah, I find it interesting that you say you had a lot of locals as well because that seems to be the difference really in a lot of restaurants in Alice Springs whether or not they're catering for a local market or a, a tourist market and there's not many that do both. Well we were really lucky to have the support of locals because really the tourism is a winter thing here and in the summer, a lot of locals would come out and camp down the river and come to Cardi's for a very lovely meal. It was the place where people would come for their weddings, parties, anything. And what was the wine list like? Over Sand to Sandra. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the wine list was, once again, it was small, but we had some very uh, good wines on and some not so, you know, and some cheaper ones, but we didn't mark up the good wines very much, so we encouraged people to drink. Hill of Grace we had on, Henschke's Hill of Grace, and we had Penfold's Bin 389, and we had Petaluma Riesling, and they really weren't much different in price on the wine list as the, um, as the cheaper varieties, but that's, that's how we wanted people to enjoy things. Maybe they wouldn't if it was marked up to what most businesses do. We weren't all that good at business. If it wasn't a, a money-spinning restaurant, what was the ethos behind Cloudy's? Oh, it was supposed to be a money-spinning restaurant, I think, but I think just the personalities of some of us, um, there were quite a few freebies going on every, every now and again, and, uh, yeah, we just wanted people to enjoy it and enjoy the food, I think, yeah. So, Mindy, can you tell me about what your approach was to, to cooking? What, you know, as a, as a chef, how did you approach menu design? Well, I like to eat. So anything that I cooked had to be delicious. That would be the charter. And I obviously had to design a menu, but often with me and cooking, I don't really know what I'm going to do until I do it. And so it is ingredients driven. And once you find your ingredients, you then create. I grew up with a very uh, good cook, my mother, and my father was also you know, really on board with the whole eating experience. So I grew up with food as center front and centre in day-to-day -day life. And so, yeah, uh, designing a menu is just around not one particular cuisine. It's And Australia obviously has got such great influences, so I probably had 
an Asian influence, an Italian influence, but very, very broad. You talked about in your writing that you it was like that, that wow factor, this idea that when, you know, someone gets the, the meal in front of them, they've got this wow. Yeah, what? so visual is important too. I paint now and when I paint, it changes the way I see the colours and just the shapes and the way things look and the way I cut vegetables and put colours together on a, on a plate was part of the training. So when someone was cooking on my day off, it wasn't just these are the ingredients. It's like, I want you to put it on the plate and this goes here and this goes here and this goes here. And it wasn't necessarily all that fussy, but it just, as you say, the flavour is the first thing that has to be the wow factor. But you also want it just to be balanced and just perfect on the plate like a painting. Did you have an experimental kitchen or did you have an experimental day? Like a lot of your food sounds like you would have needed to have experimented a little bit to make particular dishes like that sardine dish, etc. Was there an experimental period that you Well, not formally. There wasn't formally an experimental period, but the life in the kitchen with the various people that I worked with and the fact that we had to provide staff meals was a pretty easy way to, if you had an idea and you weren't sure of it, you'd sit around and taste things. But yeah, probably not a great deal, not formally. But I used to love sitting around with Jackie and John, who were my most stable team for a period. And yeah, we would look forward to what we were going to have for our staff meal. And then some of those things would morph onto the menu. Do you think being so isolated also led you to being innovative? Oh, it had to be, I suppose, yeah. And I mean, Sandra was always sitting in the office doing something and I would take little little treats in for her for, for comment. And uh, they were usually pretty good comments. And she would also put in little orders for things that she loved that, you know, we, there was a, a nice um, exchange there. But in terms of innovative and remote, definitely, you know, really, you could not just have the luxury of going to the Adelaide market every day. It really was about creating really good flavours from whatever turned up weekly on the truck, ordered on the radio telephone and collected by Jill. And the success of the restaurant was acknowledged with quite a lot of awards. I was wondering, Sandra, if you could talk about some of those awards that Cloudy's won. Yeah, they we did win not just for Cloudy's but also for the for Glen Helen itself. Over the, from about 1987, we won a Brogger Award and and uh, another award for NT Enterprise Awards. 88, they won another award, Spirit of the Territory. 88 is when Cloudy's won a. Uh, the NT Rolga Award for the Restaurant in Pursuit of Excellence and 88 in the Australian tu- Tourism Awards. We didn't win the overall best restaurant but they gave us a special mention, a special mention for a unique and re- remote restaurant. And then the following year in 89 we won the top restaurant award in Australia. The wow, congratulations. Well, wow, that's... In the tourism yeah. awards. And yeah. um, the, unfortunately 89 was when the... Um, pilot strike was on which was also another impediment so we were unable to go and actually they didn't have a award that night in I think it was in Brisbane for us to go and collect so and I think again in 92 they won a specialist accommodation award at the Brogas and Jill's got here tidy towns award <laughs> in 92 <laughs> <White> <laughs> so rocks. many many awards and yeah. many sort of accolades there were tv shows and things made 
something I would say about the Tourism Awards for the Restaurant in Pursuit of Excellence meant a great deal to Di. She was so motivated about having something that was beyond expectation out at Glen Helen. And when I attended one of the, those award ceremonies up in Darwin, and she was so proud <coughs> and so excited. I mean, we all were, but I think for Di, it was a really great seal of approval for all the hard work she'd put into that vision. Be really keen to actually read through one of the menus that we've got here. You spoke about a, there was one Christmas, so you would actually do Christmas lunches, mainly for locals. And there's this amazing menu that we found here today. And I was wondering, Mindy, if you wouldn't mind reading through that that menu. Sure. They were great fun. We did do Christmas menus more than these two, but there were two in particular where we had set menus and a lot of our friends came out and it was so much fun. And of course it was furiously hot and uh, everybody settling into the dining room. Was it air conditioned? Oh, sort of. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, over to you, Mindy. All right, so I can't remember what year it was, but a Christmas lunch was booked out and the menu was a set menu and I think it was seven or eight courses. We just started with champagne and mango for Christmas, cherries for Christmas, cashews for Christmas, and the cherries were served in glass bowls with little hearts of ice so that on a boiling hot day, people had to dive into a bowl of cold water to get their cherries. And the variety was absolutely supreme variety known as opals, and I organised them to come up from Adelaide and roasted the cashews on the day and coated them with garlic, Tabasco and soy sauce. And my brother was instructed to fly some sugar-cured tuna to us. He is also in the food industry, and I've worked with him often. Uh, So Richard prepared the sugar-cured tuna that we served with potato pikelets and mustard dill sauce. And then the next course, people seem to expect seafood at Christmas, even in the desert. So we had a seafood noodle salad, choosing things that managed to come out of a freezer and still have good quality. Next course was marinated duck and goose salad with pickled vegetables. And you can't get geese from local suppliers, so I found someone who had geese and had someone help me prepare them. And we had quail eggs with that dish that were pickled and Chinese preserved duck egg that, again, came up from Adelaide. Next course, so this was the only hot course on our desert Christmas lunch, and that was a beautiful, clear game bird consomme. Nice cleansing dish before the dessert, which was... A nod to Christmas pudding, but it was plum and chestnut ice cream, a slice of it served with brandied summer fruits. And then most of the guests ambled off down to the waterhole for a swim, and then they came back at their leisure for fruitcake, shortbread, coffee and chocolates. It was lovely. It was a great day. Did you get to sit down with everyone and enjoy it as well? Oh, not at the time. That's (laughs) that's the peril of being a chef. While everybody else is having fun, you're working rather hard it's a difficult thing in that way because you miss out on a lot of normal socializing as a chef and the other thing that's odd is you'll go out into the dining room and you may have friends out there and they'll introduce you you're in such a fog from working so hard that you you meet people and you say hello nice to meet you and then you might see them the next day in Woolworths and not have a clue who they are (laughs) tricky so you left Cloudy's in 92 is that right 
Ah, uh, yes, it was. And are you still working in the food industry? No, I have had a complete change where I used to do something that was fairly harsh on my body, mopping floors at midnight, etc. Much as I loved it, but you know, it's I didn't think it was really sustainable for me into the older years of my life. And I now work with a physiotherapist doing Pilates movement therapy. That's quite a career change. It was massive for me and it was unexpected and I love it. Yeah, it's great. And Sandra, were you involved in any ventures here in Central Australia after Cloudy's closed down? Yeah, not in tourism, not in food, no. I then returned to being a nurse. Five years I was there. It was an incredibly special time because I was allowed to do whatever I wanted in terms of the menu and I got a lot of applause for it, so that was great. We had people streaming in and appreciating the effort. And the lifestyle was pretty extraordinary, living in such a beautiful place and being primarily an evening commitment for me. I'd start work generally around about two. So I slept outside a lot and I swam every day until the water got too cold. And even though it was remote, Glen Helen had an amazing magnetism and so if you sat there long enough everybody would come to you so it wasn't socially boring it was really quite wonderful there were some fantastic people that I worked with over those years I really loved it I had a lot of freedom you know it was a really really nice part of my life to live in such a beautiful place for such a long time what was your most loved dish that you had ever cooked I don't really know <laughs> how about you Sandra what was the one dish or two dishes that really stand out in your memory? For some reason, I've got seafood noodle salad in my head, which I'm not quite sure why, but I, that was pretty special. Mm-hmm. And also, I think we did, you did do duck breasts as well. It was um, on the menu quite yeah. often, yes. So in the condong sauce? Yeah, at one sometimes. Stage. Yeah. It wasn't sometimes, always. No, well, yeah. not always, but I think probably those two, for some reason, stand out. But there were so many of them. It's, it's very hard to, to pick. One. The dessert menu was always fun. <coughs> I remember we always had, we used to make stripy ice creams and mm. we used to make stripy torts. Chocolate tort? Yeah, zebra tort. Mm. Remember that was black and white? That was lovely. The Italo Mexican marriage was a delicious vegetarian entree that was just discs of polenta that I'd slice and sandwich together with chili and cheese and a slice of tomato on top and just frizzle it in the oven and then serve it with a nice splodge of guacamole that was good do you think a a fine dining restaurant in a remote location would do well today i think so my daughter is living here and her friends are pretty frustrated that they you know think what are we going to do now and they're keen but they go "Mm, i think we've eaten in all the likely places and they haven't found anything that approximates what we offered at Glen helen yeah it's nice to be back here for a little holiday and have the chance to talk, especially spend time with Sandra and remember that. Yeah, a lot of memories here. Yeah. It, it was a really important part of our trade at yeah. Glen Helen yeah. and it was probably part of what kept me there for five years was because much as in my work I miss out on a lot of social events, people came to us and it was really, really fun. And I was so pleased when we got a an apprentice when I didn't have to cook on Mindy's night. <laughs> I've been I've been in lots of situations, work situations, but I've never been so anxious about anything uh, as that those two nights. 
the week. But, you know, I had so you would have to cook. There were two nights of the week you would always yeah. have to cook. And did you have training as a chef at all? No, but originally when when, we, when I first came up, we had the Pines in town restaurant, which yeah. is the Pines Homestead Lodge, and that was that turned out to be the best restaurant in town when I was cooking there. I mean, there's still people in town that I've run into who remember the Pines and how one, how wonderful it was. I mean, there's not all that many left, but <laughs> there are, and it's you know it was sort of a it was a mad place too. Well, uh, that was the beginning, really, wasn't it? That was when yeah. Di. Well, she had to she re- refurbished that that as well. Yeah. Like Again, her vision and passion. Yeah, that's right. Thing of change. Bit of a heyday. Just yeah. stick to that period because that's what we. Well, in our opinion, it was. <laughs> Yeah. It really was. I mean, just just the the little team that ran the place. There were just there was a time where there was a handful of people that were just so compatible, and we had to socialise and work together twenty four hours a day, and it was really quite wonderful. And you obviously formed good friendships. The fact that both of you are still friends that you've worked with each other and your friends all Absolutely. these Sandra years later. Absolutely, Sandra is family and she is my daughter's godmother. Well, thank you both for sharing your experiences today. I, I feel really sad that I never actually got to eat there. Like, I think I missed it by about 10 years. So I'm going to have to just look at the... You've got some beautiful sort of photos there and we'll um, post those photos as well. So thank you both for your time and for sharing your experiences of Cloudy's Restaurant. You're very welcome. It was so great to chat to Sandra and Mindy and I couldn't help but feel the story also needed another perspective, the perspective of the patron, just to fully appreciate what had been achieved there. So I managed to track down a former regular diner and visitor to Cloudy's just to get their view on the experience. Hello, Liz Scott. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Hello, Rita. I wonder if you could just let me know how you first came to visit Cloudy's Restaurant and roughly what year that might have been. Uh, when I arrived in Alice, and it's terrible, I can't remember if it was 87 or 88, it was just after literally the week of the huge floods. I arrived knowing one person um, here, and uh, instead of her meeting me at the station, her father did. And she decided to go bush. That wasn't great. And then a mate of hers came over that evening, a bloke called Mark Gillam. And uh, he'd been sent to look after me. So during the day, I helped Mike with doing things particularly. He was about to have his first ever photographic exhibition at the residency. And then the afternoons, he'd take me places like Jesse Gappin seeing 2,000 budgies together as opposed one in a cage by itself in lonely cold Melbourne and the clay pans alive with life and I wanted to go out bush before I started my new job and he said I don't feel good about you going out bush particularly with all the rain and the wet by yourself no four-wheel drive I had an old Renault 16 that was did a lot of four-wheel drive business I must say and so he sent me out to Glen Helen and he rang ahead and he told the girls I was told the girls would look after me And so I went out there for a couple of days. I booked a couple of days, stayed about four days, I think. And his parting words was, don't let them keep you out there, make sure you come back. (laughs) So I I went the most glorious drive. You know, I still have burned in my memories what that road looked like then, which is different to now, was pre-Buffle. And uh, because of the water and the rain... Everything was glistening. And there I met the girls. 
which was, you know, at the time Sandra and I and Jill and Mindy, who had not been there a long time. And the water was still very, very high. It was the middle of winter, but I couldn't help but swim. And uh, if you know Glen Helen, the steps from the veranda looking over the, the water and the rock wall, the water came up to the bottom step just near the veranda, which is, I don't know how many metres, it'd be less than what it normally is, but I'm no good with distance, whatever. It's pretty high. Pretty high. And I, I think the first night, I know I did dine in Cloudy's the first night, and I couldn't believe it. Walking into this room that was darkish, it was a bit that pioneer look. There was a lot of rough-hewn timber, stonework, big fireplace, intimate. You know, I remember sitting down and there was the most beautiful glasses and there was beautiful, beautiful, beautiful plates from memory, bone, china, lovely cutlery, beautiful linen napkins and not a large menu but divine. I could not believe. I'd just moved from Adelaide and had previously been living in Sydney. And this was some of the best food I'd ever tasted. I couldn't wow. believe it. I just kind of thought, you know, when Mike had raved about it, I went, how we treat everything these days, 35 years later. But it was sublime. It was absolutely beautiful, extraordinary. I mean, even the bar food was. You know, if you just went to the bar for a meal, magnificent, magnificent bar food, whether it was a steak sandwich or curry, fabulous curries, a bowl of curry out there, you know, yeah. if you're doing a bit of a day trip. Yeah. But certainly Cloudy's was the piece of the resistance. Wow. How was Cloudy's uh, connected in your life or, or what role did it play once you moved to Yundamu? Okay, so I went to Yundamu, I think it was about six months later, eight months later. And and at Yundamu, I, it was a bit rough. My first year I lived in a swag, working for the government. Imagine sending someone out now to do that through a summer and winter. The mining shop was great getting in specialties if we needed it, like a kilo tin of feta we wanted and what have you. But what we used to do is send a shopping list into friends through a fax machine uh, in town and we'd book Glen Helen and our mates would drive from Alice. We would drive from Yuendamu down my most favourite road in the world behind round Mount Wedge and coming from you and to me the back road around Mount Wedge and you come around on the eastern side of Mount Wedge and there's a slight descent just ever so slightly and this you know it is the red red and just this avenue of corkwoods and desert oaks and grevilleas and which were all in flower because of the rain and I've, that road's never disappointed me. I've seen a fair bit of the world. It's that remains road, yeah. my favourite bit of road, particularly coming from you and to me down rather than up. But either, anyway, so we would go and have a big weekend at Glen Helen. Sometimes we'd camp at Two Mile, but given us living in a swag, it was a bit of a treat to uh, be in the motel accommodation. And they'd bring our shopping out. We'd all have a huge weekend, dining as much as possible on Mindy's food. <laughs> and uh, pay for our groceries and head back to you and to me and then head back from town on late Sunday. Wow, so you never actually even made it into Alice Springs? Frequently not, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Why would you go into Alice if you could uh, be out at Glen Helen? Did you have any really memorable events there at um, Cloudy's? 
look, there's a number, but I think the one that really stands out for me and it shows the beautiful grace and generosity of spirit that those women had, which is why I guess it was as it was. It wasn't just the building. It wasn't just the food. It was the nature of the beast that had created this and Mindy was more than the icing on the cake. But I had a friend in town whose birthday was the same day as me and Sandra's birthday was the day before mine. My mother very unexpectedly died four weeks before my birthday. And, you know, I was young, she was young, far too young to die and be left motherless, me. And when I got back to town, Sam rang me and, you know, check on me and then said, look, for our birthday, it's on the weekend, let's go out to Glen Helen. It's going to be a hard birthday for you and... Uh, Let's go out to Glen Helen. And uh, basically Mindy cooked a very special birthday banquet for Sam, Sandra and I. It was absolutely magnificent and it was beautiful. And again, their you know, nature of spirit and generosity. And, uh, you know, it was a tricky time for me, just yeah. unexpectedly losing my mother. But I was surrounded by these beautiful women and Sam, who was a man. <laughs> Uh, but a very dear old friend of theirs and you know we arrived and there was magnificent champagne and chocolates on the bed and we went swimming up in uh, the gorge it's December so you know it's good warm. yeah it's warm not like my winter swim the first time I went there and then came back to this magnificent magnificent birthday feast that Mindy had cooked and sadly it wasn't until the very end of the meal that she could join us, and thus is the problem of many a fine cook. They can't sit back and enjoy the food with the people that are just relishing in their creativity. And it is a terrible thing to admit that I don't recall all of my meals. I just savour this whole kind of atmosphere and stunningness, though I would frequently have duck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mindy did fabulous things with duck. That would be a wow. very common thing. But very, very good with desserts as well as savoury with always a little bit of a bent on it. Did you ever spend any of the Christmases out there? I didn't ever have a Christmas there. I was going to have a Christmas but uh, the year that my mother died. Okay. But given we were already in December, it was one of those things of go back to family base Yeah. for the first Christmas. Uh, but they were legendary. And they were almost sold out the year before. You know, people, it was really the big friendship group predominantly booked in. And, uh, you know, perhaps the generosity of the ladies was one of the things that didn't prove to be brilliant economically for them because a lot of people that went there were friends or became friends. And they were terribly generous, Sandra <laughs> and her wines. And that night, that birthday night... I think we saw sunrise from the veranda and I think it was at about midnight or 2am Sandra announced that she was no longer attending the bar we were to attend ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember pouring a schooner of Cointreau at sunrise. Wow. <laughs> wow. It's so it sounds like it was so much more than a restaurant. It was absolutely, it was a haven. Yeah. It was a haven. And 
I think without the fabulous food, it would have been a very lovely place. I think there was magic created by the women and the spirit, that group of women. But then to have Mindy's cooking on top of it, it was sort of a sacred haven. Wow. Do you think a restaurant like Cloudy's in a remote location would be successful today? Absolutely. (laughs) Bring it on. Mindy, Mindy, (laughs) do you want a new life? Absolutely. I mean, would yeah. you go? Oh, absolutely. Do you wish you'd gone hearing well, like, these stories? Yeah, like at, at the beginning of this show I talk about that, you know, that idea of going for a drive on the weekend somewhere where it's, you know, it's not just about going to a beautiful place but actually having a beautiful experience and a beautiful meal. And, yeah, I, I would drive a long way for a decent meal, I can tell you now. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Liz. I, I do feel sad that I was never able to experience cloudies but you know maybe someone listening to this will be so inspired that we'll have a a cloudies too happening in the next couple of years imagine that yeah (laughs) Mindy could be a consultant i know and there's a couple of good locations there around alice springs where i think it could work absolutely and i think you know if i think back to mindy's food there was often like an asian influence pre-asian being groovy uh but it wasn't a set type of food, put a hand at anything yes, inspired Yes, yes, I've her. had a look at the menu and it is quite interesting. And, I mean, I find it interesting that there were such limited items. So there was like five entrees, five mains, five desserts. Yeah. And it certainly had like an Asian influence as well. Absolutely. And I can remember going into a cafe in Sydney with some friends a few years later and looked in the fridge and there were these pots that looked very, very familiar to me. And I said to the bloke, what's this? And he said, oh, my sister makes it. And he said, it's black rice. I said, with banana cream on top. You couldn't be Mindy. Are you Mindy's brother? He went, how do you know? Who are you? Oh. And Mindy used to make, once she came to town and left Cloudy's, uh, she used to make an... You know, I know there's one person who... There is one person in town because early Afghan traders when I was first here, and I won't say who that person I is... I know who it is. Too. ...that she was making the black sticky rice with banana cream Absolutely. on top. And I haven't seen that made here for a lot of years. And, you know, I had no idea that that was Mindy's So recipe. that's Mindy's and it was in her brother's cafe up in uh, Taylor's Square. And it was like, it's got to be Mindy's. Yeah. Yeah, and she delivered it. They were living down the coast. She used to deliver it every I wonder if I could get that recipe from her. You'd have to ask Mindy. You couldn't ask the keeper of it. She's been very, very secret with it for many, many years. I know, and her lemonade we used to do for the Steiner Fair. Yes. Uh, Her mint lemon. (laughs) Mindy, you're fabulous. You're a hero. Live on. Well, thank you so much, Liz. I really loved, in fact, hearing about Cloudy's back in the day. Yeah, and thank you for celebrating them. The story needed to be told. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, magic, 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 magic. <laughs> thank you. Okay. It's been so lovely and also sad in some ways to find out about that wonderful restaurant, Cloudy's at Glen Helen. I'm hoping that some potential restaurateur is similarly inspired by this story to revisit the concept and reality of a fine dining restaurant in a remote location here in Central Australia. A big thanks to Darcy Gooding for helping out with this recording. Tonight we're going out with a final nod to Cloudy's with Cloudy by Simon and Guffunkel. You've been listening to Kitchen Radio and my name is Rita Katoni. Please tune in next fortnight for another episode of Kitchen Radio 
or tune in next week at the same time for Book Chat with Eleanor Hogan. And keep cooking. <laughs>